Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Now when you read or you hear today's text, you can be forgiven for wondering if you just walked into a wedding service. Because it's a very common verse and and passage of scripture that we use when performing a wedding. Because the reading of chapter 13 of St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians has become much a fixture of marriage ceremonies, such as unity candles, Mendelssohn's wedding song march, um, nervous grooms, fainting bridesmaids. No wedding would be complete without it. So it may surprise you to learn that when Paul penned these words, he wasn't in fact writing about marriage or romantic love. He was not writing specifically to brides or to grooms, or to Valentine's Day sweethearts, but he was writing to the church. A difficult, confused, proud, status-obsessed, self-centered, man-centered church. Located in Corinth, Greece, about halfway between Athens and Sparta, and what he wrote to the people of that congregation almost 2,000 years ago still resonates throughout the centuries, because it reminds us of what is central to the Christian life and what it is not, what is important and what is unimportant, what matters and what does not matter. Now I should pause and note that it is impossible to study and to preach this chapter of 1 Corinthians as I am going to try to do this morning without being confronted with the fact that you don't measure up to the standard from which Paul describes here. Isn't that encouraging? 
We don't stand up to the test, do we? We're all hypocrites to a greater or lesser degree. So let's acknowledge that together, but not let it prevent us from learning what God has to teach us in this portion of his word. Because this text is not intended to be merely a beautiful piece of poetry, which it very well is, but it is not in its intended purpose. We're not intended to stand back and admire it. These aren't just words to embroider into a wall hanging, and we all have them in our homes. We all have the verses across our homes. I've been to many of your homes, and I've seen them. I have them in mine. They're not there to just look at. They're not there to just admire. See, it's part of the script for our lives. So let's look at it together as we do, and let's ask each other's or ourselves, what God would have us to do in response to it. Will you do that with me this morning? Now, as a background, the church of Corinth had a lot of problems. Theological divisions, blatant sin, class divisions, and pride. You think the modern church has worship wars? They invented worship wars. But the root of all these various problems was really quite simple. It was a failure of love. A failure of love shows itself in a myriad of ways. And you can't always start with the root because sometimes you have to begin by addressing the effects. More importantly, the fruit. But eventually it always leads back to that fundamental problem of our lack of love, really, for God. Our lack of love for each other. Paul finally writes in chapter 13 about the obvious issues in the Corinthian church and a lot of issues that we too today often face. And this is really the core of 1 Corinthians because love is not just one Christian virtue among many. It is the essence of what it means to follow Christ. And if you have that, you have everything. But if you don't have that, you have nothing. So let's see why Paul wrote what he wrote, because I think we need to hear it. Because although we may not have precisely the same problems as the church in Corinth, or we might even have them in the same measure, but we all have the same root problem, which is sin and selfishness. So the message they needed to hear 2,000 years ago, we also need to hear them today. Paul begins by making a series of rather startling statements. So you can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're looking at verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And I've already read it earlier, but if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love... I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, in each of these statements, Paul begins with a known spiritual gift. 
speaking in tongues, prophecy, and giving. And then he intensifies it and he heightens it to the greatest degree possible here. Not only speaking in tongues, but speaking in angelic tongues. Not only prophecy, that is, declaring the word and deeds of God and encouraging God's people, but having complete understanding of all the mysteries and having all the knowledge. And by the way, this was something which even Paul did not claim for himself because he writes a few verses later, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. So not only having faith, but such a faith that could literally move a mountain. Are we that faithful? Can we move mountains? But not only giving generously and sacrificially to meet the needs of others, but giving away all, underline that, all that I possess. Even giving up my own body. That is, giving up my life for others. Paul's purpose in using such extreme examples is to state as forcefully as possible. This was a serious, serious matter within that church. It is a serious, serious matter within our church. We need to have love. He's saying that without love, nothing we do for Christ means anything. It may benefit others... But as far as I'm concerned, the one doing the serving, doing the giving, doing the sacrificing, it has no value whatsoever. No, you did not hear that wrong. It has no meaning whatsoever if there is no love behind it. Because it was all just wasted effort. I get no credit for that. God is not impressed. God is not impressed with what I can do. But if I can do it out of his great love for me and my great love for others, that's when it means something. From God's point of view, without love, I am nothing. I have done nothing. I have achieved nothing. I have gained nothing. Nothing. Let me repeat that. Nothing. Nothing eternally and nothing in this life either. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't like these verses very much. To me, they're not something beautiful and inspiring, right? They are because they are the words of God. But it doesn't encourage me. In fact, it makes me feel about this big. And because I've actually made some sacrifices in my life, we've all done that. We've all suffered loss. We've labored for the cause of Christ. And although we are fully aware that our own sacrifices and our own labors pale in comparison to those of many saints around the world and even throughout history, still they were something. They were something because they all had that core root of love. In God's sight, it was nothing. Now that's a sobering thing for me. It's sobering to think that some of what I was giving my life to could be for nothing. Have you ever thought of that? What you're doing now may be for nothing. If you have that thought in your mind, would you continue to do what you're doing if you knew it was for nothing? That's what society wants to tell you. You're believing in God for nothing. You gain nothing. Where is the proof 
that you're gaining something here? Why is it beneficial to you to live the life that you do? It is our love for God that allows us to do these things. If God didn't love us, we couldn't love either. Perhaps we're in the same boat. Perhaps as you look back on your life, you can identify times when you've given, you've served, you've labored, you've sacrificed, or even suffered for Christ. Hopefully you can. But, as you're probably wondering, was it really out of love for God? Was it out of love for his people? And did I do those things? Or was it for some other reason that was underlining in our heart why we continue to do what we do? Perhaps you're engaged in ministry even now. And you're thinking about these verses and wondering, am I doing this out of love? Am I teaching? Am I caring for children in the nursery? Am I leading a Bible study? Am I tithing? Am I giving up vacation time to go on a missions trip? Am I doing all of that out of love? Am I witnessing to my neighbor out of love? Because if not, it doesn't mean anything. No matter how it may look to us, we can't fool God. God sees through the heart. And while we're able to fool others, God knows why we do what we do. And if we're doing it out of love, then it's all for nothing. And I know that's harsh, and it's hard to fathom, and it's hard to understand sometimes. But God lays it out. If it is not out of love, it means nothing. And just to drive this point home, sort of twist the knife a little bit, I guess. Here's a verse earlier from this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 15. says it perfectly. But by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light, and it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Are we building up something that's, that looks pretty on the outside? But then when God comes to test it, it just falls apart. Is that how strong your love is for one another? Is that how, how much love you have for God? That when he steps in and tests it, that it folds? No, I like that. When people are rescued from a burning house, if you've ever seen this on the news, at first they're relieved. We got out alive, right? They're happy to have escaped with their lives. But we know soon after they're going to weep. Because so much of what they invested their life in has been destroyed. Wedding photos, children's arts projects, the dining room table that spent 20 years of family dinners prepared and serving on. And for some people, their entrance into heaven will be just like that. Everything they gave their life to 
will be gone. They won't receive any reward for it because it had no eternal value. And what Paul is telling us here in chapter 13 is that the key factor which determines the quality of our work, the key factor which determines whether it has value and whether it lasts and it won't be burned up, that key factor is love. To put it another way, it doesn't just matter what we do, it matters why we do it. And it matters very much to God. Now, at this point, we'd like to find a way to let ourselves off the hook. I know a lot of people that uh, read this particular passage of Scripture, they read it and they think, oh, well, you know, but if I do it this way, that might you know, make it look like that I really truly have love for that individual. And we like to excuse ourselves from the, uh, the dangerous portion of this Scripture, which is basically telling us it all amounts to nothing. Jesus spoke these words, though. And Matthew included them in his gospel because doing good works for the approval of other people is a very real temptation here. And when we act from these motives, we get exactly what we're seeking. We get that recognition, but nothing more. Here's a trivial example. When you put your offering in the basket on Sundays, do you get praised for that? Do you secretly hope the neighbor next to you looks when you put that money in the, in the jar or the, the basket. I'll give you another example. Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes about those who were preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. In other words, some were working hard to preach and teach effectively, but they were not doing it out of love. Not out of love for God or a love for God's people. It was out of a desire to build up their own reputation. Out of a desire to be viewed more favorably than Paul. Let me ask you. Have you ever taught a class here on Sunday morning or led a home Bible study? If you have, raise your hand. Don't be shy. Do you wonder how you compare to other teachers? Do you work hard at preparing your lesson in the hopes that maybe people will talk about how great your class was or comment on what a wonderful teacher you are? Let me make some other suggestions as to why someone might give or work or sacrifice. How about duty or a sense of obligation? Doing your part, fulfilling your responsibilities as a church member. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not love. How about guilt? How many times have I stood here, pastor has stood here, Dave has stood here, and we've kind of guilted you into doing something? Or at least tried to. It's not out of guilt. I know we laugh about that, but it's really not about guilt. If you feel guilty, I think you better talk to your Lord about that one. It's not out of guilt. It's out of love for the church, allowing you to be a part of it, allowing you to be a part of the love that we share and that we share with others. Sometimes you get the double whammy. How about guilt and flattery? We're in a real bind here, so it would be really great if you did this. And because you're so wonderful at it, we know you would be perfect. How do you say no to somebody like that? I know I've said it to some of you. 
you'd be really great in this class. You should come teach. Rick, I did it to you. Because he is a wonderful teacher. And many, many others out here, you're wonderful teachers. But I don't do it out of guilt and flattery. If it flattered him, great. But I don't do that out of guilt and flattery. And that's what God is saying here. We're in a real bind. Chris, others, I need you to lead others to Christ. I need to further my kingdom. So I'm going to instill in you some spiritual gifts. I hope you use them wisely. I hope you use them wisely. Actually, not only pride, but also the so-called seven deadly sins can motivate us to do good things. Gluttony, greed, sloth, lust, wrath, envy, any one of them can be a motivation for outwardly godly behavior. We human beings, we're kind of messed up, aren't we? Some of the motives I mentioned aren't bad in themselves. Duty, for instance, or a desire for honor. But if that's all there is for you, it's worth nothing. If it's the driving force that accompanies you as you go through that journey, and there is no love backing it, what you see is what you get. It's not lasting. It's fleeting. It, basically, your motive behind anything, anything that we do, the motive behind everything we need to do it should be love. But I have to tell you, there, there is some bad news to some of this. And that, that was kind of the first half of this sermon. It's going to kind of be the bad news. Don't worry, I'm going, to, I'm going to flip it here in just a little bit, okay? So bear with me. And if I did nothing more than this morning, then to encourage you to fl- reflect on why you're doing what you're doing so that you would examine your heart and check on yourself to see what that motive is in your life, then I would have succeeded. But happily, there's more in this passage than just a warning. There's also useful instruction which brings the good news. First, the useful instruction. Since our true motives are often hidden, even from ourselves, how do we know if we are acting in love? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. How do we know if love is what is motivating our serving How do we know that it is motivating when we are giving? The answer that we can tell is by how we treat other people. Let's look at uh, verse 4 of chapter 13, still in 1 Corinthians. It says, love is patient. Love is patient. How is patience an expression of love? And what kind of patience does Paul really have in mind here? First, patient includes forbearance. That is, tolerating the everyday faults and flaws of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't need to complain about them or irritatably rebuke them or even forsaking them completely. Romans 15.1 
We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgives you. Forbearance is like tolerating that small stone in your shoe you get and it pokes at you every time you take a step. You know what I'm talking about? That little hindrance there, you can kind of deal with it, but you know it's there and it bothers you. It's putting up with the things that we find irritating in other people. Let's face it, some of the things you can do can be pretty irritating. I know I do things that are irritating to people. I know that. I know that. You tell the same stories over and over, laugh at your own jokes. You insist on showing everyone pictures of your grandchildren or your vacation or of your cats dressed up in silly costumes. This is no one in particular, by the way. You complain too much. You talk about your job all the time. You're too opinionated. You're obsessed with money or with sports or with politics. Polka music. I've heard that one. Justin Bieber. That's for my youth. Not so much now. But it was a thing, believe me. Patience means putting up with people who do those things. Not temporarily, and not on the condition that everything or everything eventually changes, but as long as necessary. It's an ongoing thing. Love and patience are an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time action. It's a continual action. Patience also includes long-suffering. This is the willingness to accept suffering over an extended period of time rather than trying to escape it at the expense of others' welfare. We have a tendency to do that too. Sometimes there's a way out of a situation, but it involves hurting others, or violating a trust, or failing to keep a promise. Love means not taking that way out. Have you ever been through a long period of unpleasantness? which you could have avoided or escaped by acting in a selfish way. Love means not taking that way of escape. So what is love like? Well, we just read, it says love is kind. This is both passive and it is both active as well. Kindness sometimes involves meeting meeting another's need in a compassionate way. Sometimes we meet needs, but we do it in a begrudging way. Okay, I'll do that for you. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. You do what you have to do to, you kind of shut them up a little bit. You don't want to hear them. But you also feel obligated or guilted into doing it. Helping them with a difficult task. Reliving their burden through practical actions. But sometimes kindness means not saying anything. You ever been there? Sometimes you just need to say nothing. You just be there for that person. You let them know that you're there. You let them know that you care. And not care because you have to. Care because you genuinely feel for them. You genuinely want to be there for them. But that doesn't mean you never share hard truths with one another. 
sometimes the most loving thing you can do is to tell someone a truth that they'd rather not hear. For example, most of you might know this person, some of you may not. You know of a man named Simon Cowell? Yeah, yeah there's laughs, I know you do. But he always felt that he was doing the American Idol contestants a service by crushing their dreams. Here's some examples. You decide. He once said, and then, by the way, Simon Cowell is a, a, a judge for a popular TV show, American Idol, where they come on to sing and then they go through various rounds and if they make it to the end, they win a million dollars. But anyways, these individuals go out of their comfort zone to put themselves on the line and sing in front of these judges. And here's some of the comments he's made to some of the contestants. He says, you're like a mouse trying to be an elephant. Years ago, I sat on two cats, and that's what it sounded like. If you had lived 2,000 years ago and sung like that, I think they would have stoned you. You sing like a train going off the rails. He's even asked the contestant this, Do you have a singing teacher? He says, get a lawyer and sue her. That song was like going to a zoo or something. I mean, those noises were beyond anything I have ever heard. There's only so many words I can drag out of my vocabulary to say how awful that was. Even though these are kind of hilarious, but do we not act like Simon Cowell sometimes to others? They may not be as harsh of words, but maybe in our actions, the way we interact with those individuals, that's how it might feel to them. If you look back at verses 4 and 5 in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. Envy looks at what something, or it looks at someone and what they have, right? Whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's money, whether it's looks, uh, happy family, friends, education, envy looks at those things and says, well, that's not fair. Why do they get to enjoy that and I have what I have? It's not right that they should have those things and not me. I'm just as deserving as they are. And to be quite honest with you, there is some truth in that. This world isn't fair. Ecclesiastes has taught us that. The race doesn't always go to the swift or the battle to the strong. We've seen that in the Olympics, haven't we? Where the person is favored to win an event, they end up in last place for, you know, different reasons. But it's not always the best person that gets the best. Our ancestors, whom we didn't even choose, supplied the DNA which determined whether we would be tall or short Hairy, not hairy, bald. It's not fair. As Solomon noted, life isn't always fair under the sun. That is on this side of the grave. But envy is not the right response. Envy is the enemy of love. Because envy with its counterparts, boasting and pride, is a zero-sum game. In other words, it's not something that you can win at. 
When those things creep into your conversations, when they creep into your relationships, when they creep into the very spiritual walk you have with the Lord, it destroys anything that has meaning behind it. That's not love. And it's a problem. But a reason why the command to not covet was included in the Ten Commandments is because a community that is poisoned by envy will cease to be a community. When envy and resentment take hold in a country, you see political attacks on those who are successful. When envy takes hold in a family, you see brothers and sisters who are bitter and estranged from one another. And when you see it in a church, you see division. You see disunity, coldness, instead of love. Now there's another reason why envy and coveting is harmful. And this reason has to do with our very vertical relationship to God. Because it extinguishes thankfulness. You cannot be envious and thankful at the same time. Because thankfulness is gratitude to God for what he has given you. While envy is resentment at what he hasn't given you. They are diametrically opposed to one another. Complete polar opposites. And so envy not only eats away at your relationship with others, it erodes your relationship to God. So how do you avoid this? What do you do? What do you say? You know, what has God laid out? What does he say about this particular subject? How do you combat, how do you combat the enemy of your soul? By looking to the future. Okay? Paul says, and he reminds us of this. Let me read it. 1 Corinthians uh, 13 verse 8 here. It says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, and when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now here's why the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is so powerful. It was powerful to the people of Corinth, which of course they were so obsessed with all the materialistic things. But it was equally powerful for us. Because in order to love, to truly love one another as Christ has loved us, we have to love sacrificially. We have to be authentic. We have to be joyful in our love. We have to keep in mind that most of the things that cause divisions among us is because there is no love behind it. Most of these things that we do that we think make and we think are so important, they're nothing in the eyes of God. Which is why we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith because faith is a lot harder. Faith tests you. Faith is something that is not supposed to come easy. And I could go on and on. 
fame, power, prestige, reputation, none of these will pass the grave. None of them will persist into eternity. What will last and what will matter is how we treat one another. Whether we have loved one another from the heart or whether our conduct has demonstrated that love, love for one another is love for God. Everything else is just details. Everything else will just be swept away. And that's it. That's love. I want to close by removing one more impediment to this love thing I've talked about. I realize that I haven't gone to the furthest depths of this chapter, and we'd be here forever. Ask Pastor. (laughs) He'd probably take one of these verses, we'd be here for four years. But that's what I love about the man. He He knows what he's doing. There is so much in this chapter. But on the other hand, I also didn't promise you that I would, so I guess I'm safe from that. But, and you can't ask for your money back, so okay? But here goes. One more thing I want you to consider. Everyone sitting around you is fighting their own private battle. Sometimes we know about them, and sometimes we don't. We learn that a church member has been diagnosed with cancer, or that a friend's wife has filed for divorce, or that someone we know has lost a job. But much of the time, perhaps most of the time, because we're all so good at hiding our weaknesses, most of the time we don't know what the other people sitting around you are struggling with. They may seem to have it all together, but I assure you that they don't. They may seem to have a perfect, charmed life, but in reality, that life includes sorrows. That life includes disappointments, pain, struggle, Loss, heartbreak, just like yours does. And because of those things, they need for you to respond to them in love, to speak to them in love, to serve them in love. They may look like they don't need it. They may act like they don't need it. They may even tell you bold face that they don't want it. But they do. They do need it. We all do. And whether or not we do that is frankly the only thing that God is going to be looking at when we get to heaven. So let's make him proud. Let's make the Holy Spirit rejoice. We need to love one another. Let us pray. Lord, sometimes we are just in wonder of how much you love us. And that while yet we were sinners, you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for them so that we might become your children and be made righteous in God. Father, it just it jumbles our thoughts and our hearts to realize that while we are cold and rebellious towards you, you have a plan. You have a plan of redemption in your heart of love. Guilty sinners can be declared righteous through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He died to pay the price for our sins with his own life blood. 
Thank you that in your grace and mercy, your strong arm of love reached down to all of us long before our rebellious heart of stone can be turned for you for healing. Lord, I hope that our love for you is not faint and fragile. We hope that it's a love that is to be so far removed from the depth of love. I desire that everyone has this kind of love for you and for others. Lord, I pray that we develop a godly love for you. Thank you for your unchanging and conditional love towards us. Help us to be more and more to have that desire to again love one another because as we love others, we love you. And all these things, Lord, we get caught up in the materialistic. We think that if we have a good job or we do a nice thing for the neighbor or we, you know, we could go on and on of these lists of things that we think matter. None of these things matter unless it's without the love of you. And it's only through your love we're able to do any of these things. Lord, so I pray this morning that we get back to that first love. And that we adjust our thinking. That we align our hearts to be like yours. And Lord, in all this, we thank you that you never give up on us. That you're always with us. That you always keep your promises. That is something worthy of love. Lord, we thank you. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.